Chapter 14, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Israel's king, Joash, son of Jehoiaz, Joash's son, Amaziah, became king over Judah. So now we're back to Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned over tw- reigned for over for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadan, who was from Jerusalem. And he did what Yahweh approved. But not like David his father, he followed the example of his father Joash. Every time a Judite king has done righteousness in God's eyes, it'll say, and he was obedient and righteous in God's eyes, just like his father David before him. This is the first guy where it mentions he was obedient and godly, but not like David. He was more like his father Joash, who, yeah, did some godly obedient things and built the temple, but also did some selfish things like robbing it and that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a half-hearted righteousness here. But the high places were not eliminated, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense in the high places. When he had secured control of the kingdom, he executed the servants who assassinated his father, but he did not execute the sons of the assassins. He obeyed Yahweh's commandment as recorded in the law of the scroll of Moses. Now this seems to suggest he's doing a good thing. So we're basically told that he, has, he, the people who killed his father, he kills them. Now remember, he's the king. And the penalty for murder, according to the Mosaic law, is death. But the Mosaic law makes it very clear that you are to kill a murderer, but you are not allowed to execute that judgment on the children. Remember, in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for people to say, you killed my brother? Well, I'm going to kill your brother and you and your family and your sister and your mom and your dad and da 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 and your children. And they would, they would escalate it. And that's why God said an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now, he didn't mean that literally. What he meant was the, the, the punishment should fit the crime. And you should not punish the children for the sins of the father. So the fact that the narrator specifically saying he killed the people, killed his father, but he did not kill the children in accordance to the law of God found in Deuteronomy, means that he was being just here. The idea that the narrator is painting here is that this is a just execution. As king, he has the right to do it. They are truly guilty. He does not escalate the murder or the the, the death penalty, and he does an obedience to the law. And we really haven't heard an obedience to the law for a long time. And so that really stands out like a sore thumb, and really implies this is a good thing that he's doing. Verse 7, He defeated 10,000 Edomites in the Salt Valley. He captured Sela in the battle and renamed it Jokathel, a name that was retained to this very day. When Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, son of Jehoiaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, he said, Come, let's meet face to face. King Joash of Israel sent his, this message back to King Amaziah of Judah. A thorn bush in Lebanon sent this message to a cedar in Lebanon. Give your daughters to my son as a wife. Then a wild animal of Lebanon came by and trampled down the thorn. You thoroughly defeated Edom, and it has gone to your head. Gloat over your success, but stay in your palace. Okay, so this is like ancient Near Eastern trash talking. Okay, so Amaziah begins to rattle his saber towards the king of Israel. 
So he defeats the Edomites. And he comes back from that victory, and he's like all that and everything now. And he thinks he's awesome. So he's like, okay, I'm going to take Israel now. And remember, Israel and Judah is in conflict. So he says, I'm going to attack you. Give me everything to stop me from doing that. Kind of an idea. And the king of Israel comes back to him and says, I'm a great big cedar, and you're a teeny little thornbush. Thornbushes don't brag in the faces of cedars because lions then come and trample thorns down. So don't trash talk like you've already won the battle. An idea here. But that doesn't stop Amaziah. So now we're seeing pride here. We're seeing pride here. Verse 11, But Amaziah would not heed the warning to King Jehoash of Israel attacked. And he and King Amaziah of Judah met face to face and Beth Shemesh of Judah. Judah was defeated by Israel and each man ran back home. The king Joash of Israel captured King Amaziah of Judah, son of Jehoiah, son of Ahaziah, and Beth Shemesh. And he attacked Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate in distance of about 600 feet. He took away all the gold and the silver, the items found in Yahweh's temple and in the treasuries of the royal palace and some of the hostages, and then he went back to Samaria. He thinks he's all that. He goes and attacks. Jehoash completely defeats him, captures him, imprisons him, attacks Jerusalem, tears down the wall, and weakens it completely. Now remember, a city's wall being torn down is like being de-pantsed in public. Okay, this is incredibly humiliating and leaves you completely vulnerable. Why did God allow this to happen? We're not told in the book of Kings why. But in Chronicles chapter 25, we're told that this is a judgment from God. And the judgment is this. We find out that when Amaziah went to Edom and conquered them, he brought the idols of Edom back and put them in Judah and began to worship them. And then when he wrote letters to the king of Israel, the king of Israel constantly kept trying to stop him. So don't do this. This is not wise. I don't really want to fight you. And so we actually see in Chronicles that the king of Israel is making every effort to stop this and not go into battle. And Amaziah is prideful. And the prophet comes to Amaziah and says, you're going to be defeated in battle for the idolatry you brought from Edom. And Amaziah is then conquered and defeated. So Kings doesn't tell you this. But... Kings doesn't think that it has to tell you because every time a king dies violently, it's judgment. It's judgment. So all you need to know is he messed up somewhere. Chronicles comes in and does that later. Verse 15. The rest of the events of Joash's reign, including his accomplishments, successful war with King Amaziah of Judah, are recorded in the scroll called the Annuals of the Kings of Judah, Israel. Joash passed away and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and his son Jeroboam replaced him as king. Wait a minute, haven't we seen that before? Notice that right before the Elisha's death story, we're told that Jehoash died and he was succeeded by Jeroboam. And then we're given a story about Jehoash and Elisha interacting with each other, which means it's a flashback to pre-death. And then we're told that Jehoash died and his son succeeded him. Now remember, we told you that the reason that he has to die is so that Elisha's death happens between kings. But he's flashing back to when he was alive to talk about Elisha's death because it's very important to the story. But just in case you're really confused, the narrator wants to remind you that he died and his son succeeded him. So don't let that double death confuse you. 
Chapter 14, verse 17. King Amaziah, son of Jehoash of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of King Jehoash, son of Jehoash of Israel. The rest of the events of Amaziah's reign are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. Conspirators plotted against him in Jerusalem. So he fled to Lachish, but they sent assassins after him, and they killed him there. His body was carried back by horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors the city of David. So eventually Joash let him low, loose uh, from prison, and he returned back home, and then he was assassinated. So once again, that's not a good death if you're supposed to be a godly king. All the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in his father Amaziah's place. Azariah built up a lot and restored it to Judah after the king had passed away. So Azariah becomes the new king. Hey, once again, I mentioned this way back in the day when we were going through all those kings before. Aren't you glad we're not living in this nation? <laughs> I mean, sometimes we think of the political turmoil that we're going through right now, but what we're going through right now and what we've ever gone through is nothing compared to this time period or other nations in the world currently right now. And there is a reason why we say God bless America. Even though God, America doesn't really follow God, God is blessing us. Thank God that we are not living. I can't imagine being the everyday normal person living in this country and that your government is just like being turned over like the soil in a field just year after year after year after year. And what that does to your, your sense of stability with your family and your hope for the future and all this kind of stuff. But remember, too, don't think, whoa, those innocent people. Because the prophets are going to remind us, this is the book of the kings and the prophets. But the prophetic books are going to remind us that the people are just as jacked up as the leaders. And so in some ways, they deserve the instability in their country as a judgment of God. And that's what the prophets are also going to tell us, is that they deserve this turmoil. And so turmoil in a nation for the kings and for the people is a judgment from God. It's a judgment from God. We go back to the king of Israel, Jeroboam II. Chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of the reign of Judah's king, Amaziah, son of Joash, Jeroboam, son of Joash, became king of Israel. He reigned for 41 years in Samaria, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not repudiate the sinful ways of Jeroboam, son of Bat, and encouraged Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, and the north to the sea of Arabah in the south, in accordance with the word of Yahweh God of Israel, announced through his servant Jonah, son of Amate. This is the Jonah from the book of Jonah. Yahweh saw Israel's in, in, intense suffering, and everyone was weak and incapacitated, and Israel had no deliverer. And Yahweh had not declared, decreed that he wouldn't blot out Israel's memory from under heaven. So he delivered them through Jeroboam, son of Joash. So Joash look like the deliverer, act like a deliverer to a certain extent, but we find out now he wasn't really truly the deliverer that God was talking about because he only was able to defeat the enemy three times. And so now God has compassion. Now notice this king is an evil, evil, evil king. But it says that God used Jeroboam as a deliverer because he felt compassion for Israel. Israel deserves all the bad things that are happening to them. But God is moved by compassion. 
The rest of the events of Jeroboam's reign, including all of his accomplishments, his military success, and restoring Israelite control over Damascus and Amath, are recorded in a scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. Jeroboam passed away and was buried in Samaria, and the kings of Israel, his son Zechariah, replaced him as king. Now, what you need to know about Jeroboam, though, is that Jeroboam will be a successful deliverer, and God will use him, and he will drive back Aram, and he will reestablish borders, and he will actually rebuild Israel back into great promise. And after all the prominent wealth of Omride and Ahab, and that all gets lost and all these kings and the judgments of God, then God comes in and feels compassion for Israel, uses Jeroboam as a deliverer, restores Israel back to good, healthy borders, so to speak, and the wealth begins to flow back into Israel. And Jeroboam is actually going to lead one of the most wealthy time periods in Israel's history since Solomon. And he's going to get closer to restoring the borders of Israel like it was in the days of David and Solomon. Now, what this is going to end up doing is when you have incredibly ungodly, evil people and they're restored back to an almost Davidic state of borders and prosperity and wealth, then it's going to lead to an unprecedented sense of corruption and um, greed and wealth and hoarding and all kinds of stuff. And we're now entering into what God is going to consider one of the most evil, sinful time periods of Israel's history. It is a time period of great wealth, great power, great decadence, great corruption. And what we're going to learn from the prophets is that these kings, the priests, the kings, and the prophets are all corrupt. And they're all worshiping Yahweh and thinking, hey, if I just go in and make a sacrifice to Yahweh, then he'll bless me. And hey, look, I can prove it to you because our nation's doing really awesome. And then we'll just go over here and we'll worship the other gods. And in fact, we'll sacrifice our children to the pagan gods in the valley right below the temple. And only that will go into the temple, and we're going to start bringing idols in the temple later. Now, I know this is Judah, not Israel, but it's all going to be all over the place. And they're going to oppress the poor and cheat everybody. And we're entering into the most wealthy, most prominent time periods, but also the most corrupt. And this is where many of the prophets are going to kick in. Because it's during this time period that the first prophetic prophet, or sorry, the first written the way that we actually have a book of the Bible and their name is going to be Amos. And Amos is going to be in Judah. He's going to look at the north and see how really jacked up evil they are. And he's going to feel called by God to move up to the north of Israel and just start laying into them big time. Amos is probably by far one of the most obedient, wisest, most insightful prophets of God that was more connected to God than any other prophet. I mean, he was the cream of the crop. And God lifted him up in one of the most decadent, most powerful, most corrupt time periods of all of Israel. So that's what we're in now. So like I mentioned, we kind of had David and Solomon, great wealth and power. We fell off into corruption and losing borders. We moved back up to Ahab, not quite like David, but then God judged them severely and used Haziel in order to press them and turn them into nothingness. But then he uses Jeroboam to bring them back up into a great status again. 
And what's interesting here is you're going to see a lot of institutions. There's going to be actually a lot of forms of government. Even though Israel will have mostly kings, there will be times that their kings will look kind of like an oligarchy. There will be times that will almost look like a democracy, even a republic at times. And they're going to have lots of different kind of forms of governments under their monarchy, and yet they're all going to fail. They're all going to fail because they're not following God. They're not following God. Lisa Ray Beal said of this time period this, how easy it would be to draw erroneous conclusions from the northern kingdom's successes. The narrative reveals those successes in several ways. The northern kingdom overshadows the southern kingdom, overreaching, its militarily, over, overreaching it militarily. Amaziah's reign is structured so as to the foreground of the northern king Jehoash. Jehoash shows wisdom along the side of Amaziah's proud imprudence. Jeroboam is the long-awaited deliverer. The prophetic word assures his success, and by him, Israel's borders approximate those of the Davidic and Solomonic errors. If one were to measure a nation's righteousness or deservedness by material markers, the northern kingdom would be given top honors. A more careful reading reveals the true story. The northern kingdom's success is in no way linked to the deservedness or righteousness. Even the deliverer, Jeroboam, walks in the sins of his namesake, the other Jeroboam. It is only Yahweh's graciousness, his commitment to the ancient promises, that Israel succeeded militarily or deliverer is even given. The ongoing Jehu- Jehuite dynasty remains only by Yahweh's word. And the powerful prophetic word of Jonah comes by Yahweh. It is by these three, these gracious enactments on Yahweh's part that Israel finds success. And what's powerful about this quotation is, we have for an awful long time period think that if someone is successful in being blessed, then that means that they're doing right. And that's a complete misunderstanding. And that's a little mini of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And we think like, and we think of this ourselves too. If I'm being blessed and I'm doing well, then my goodness, God must be blessing us. And if you really apply that to a certain extreme, then wow, Hitler was incredibly righteous because he almost took over all of Europe. We can look at Jim Jones and his success. Lots of people have been very successful. And it's very, very, very dangerous to equate a successful life with their righteousness. And what we need to remember is sometimes God blesses us even when we won't deserve it because sometimes that can be a tool to bring us to God. There are many people who've realized, wow, I don't deserve this. They've been convicted of their sin and they realize their life has been really good, really prosperous, and they realize, wow, this is only God. And that extraordinary blessing has been what God used to convict them and bring them to him. Other people, God has judged you and brought you down in order to convict you. But it's very dangerous to look at somebody's suffering life and equate it with sin. It's very dangerous to look at a blessed life and equate it with righteousness. What God calls us to 
is Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and see my heart, and investigate it, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If I'm being blessed, then I need to look inwardly and pray and ask the question, why? Why has God done this for me? And if I'm suffering from some kind of disease or financial loss or whatever, I need to look inwardly and I need to pray and I need to seek God out and ask why. And sometimes judgment is a result of sin and sometimes it's living in a fallen world and God uses it for your character. And sometimes blessing is reward for righteousness and sometimes just living in the blessings of God regardless of your behavior. And America has mistakenly for a very long time, equated the incredible blessings that we have in America with the fact that we are the chosen people of God and doing things right. And that has not been true at all. And now those blessings are beginning to slip away, and many people are like, what? How could this happen? And this is the mistake that we make as we look at people. The question is never about whether you're blessed or whether there's suffering. The question is always the fruit that you produce. The Bible is always, always pointed to the fruit in somebody's life as a measure of righteousness. Now, also be careful. Fruit can also be internal. Some people are so far away from God that there's a lot of internal thought processes that have to be rewired and transformed and redeemed. And a lot of fruit is being produced there before it affects the action, the behavior. I've known people who they've been so far away from God and so corrupt that it took them a long time to kick the obvious addictions, the sex addictions and the alcohol and that kind of stuff, because a lot of rewiring had to happen in the brain, the renewing of the mind. And if you talked to them personally and knew them well, it was clear that fruit was being produced in their thinking. And eventually it started moving outwardly into behavior as forts were being taken captive in the name of God. So I'm not saying that fruit will always be obvious to everybody, but fruit is usually visible to those who know people well. Does that make sense? If you're truly involved in somebody's life, you will see the fruit, whether good or bad, as you're involved in life. That's the measure of true righteousness, true obedience, or disobedience, not whether the person has a really great life or not on the outside. And that's the mistake that we make. 